Each of these two gospel passages makes some reference to uh, Isaiah, which I will uh, talk about later. Our first lesson is from John chapter 1. This is the testimony given by John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny it, but confessed, I am not the Messiah. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, No. Then they said to him, Who are you? Let us have an answer for those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah nor Elijah nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptize with water. Among you stands one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany, across the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The second lesson is from John chapter 9. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe in him. Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see me, who do not see may see, and those who do see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would not have sin. But now that you say, We see, your sin remains. Thank you, Barb. Uh, We are... Looking at the prophet Isaiah this morning, and uh, we have so far we've read from three of the minor prophets, Hosea, Amos, and Jonah, and now we get a major prophet. Uh, and if you were here on June third, I know that was a while ago, but if you were here on June third, you may remember uh, that this distinction between major and minor prophet has nothing to do with their importance uh, or how they're held in esteem by anyone, it just merely has to do with the length of their book. Uh, The three major prophets have very long books. Twelve minor prophets have very short books, uh, short enough that even all twelve together are still not as long as any of the major prophets. Uh, But Isaiah does stand out as a major prophet in the other sense of the word major, and that he is incredibly important, uh, especially within Christianity. Uh, among all of the 15 prophets that we have in the Old Testament, Isaiah uh, is very important in Christianity. And, and I don't know how he stands within Judaism or, or within Islam. That would be an interesting uh, thing to look up. But within Christianity, he's very important because Isaiah has the most words 
uh, about this promise of a coming Messiah, the Savior, the one who was going to come to redeem the people uh, and help restore all of the people and bring reconciliation. Uh, Isaiah has a lot of those texts. Uh, and he's quoted more than any other prophet in the New Testament. Uh, he, has, uh, he has quoted 151 times throughout the New Testament. And that may sound like a big number, and it is a big number. Uh, the, the only other book of the Old Testament quoted more is the Psalms. And the, uh, the, the number two prophet in terms of being quoted is Ezekiel, and he only gets quoted 26 times. Uh, so Isaiah is quoted almost six times more uh, than the number two because Isaiah was just so, so important to the early Christians. Uh, and Isaiah is also uh, a little unique. Uh, Isaiah and Jonah both stand in unique places within the prophetic canon. Jonah, because his book uh, is not one that he wrote, it was a book written about him 400 years after he was alive, or uh, you know, plus or minus. Uh, and so it's a story of Jonah, although we do know that Jonah was a prophet and was a prophet at the same time as Hosea and Amos and Isaiah. He's, he gets him mentioned in the 14th chapter of 2 Kings. Uh, but all of the other prophetic books besides Jonah were written by the prophets or written by their followers or part of their group. Uh, for the most part, all the text written contemporaneously at the same time that the prophet was alive, although like any book uh, in the Bible, there are later edits and additions and, and things, maybe some of the text gets moved around. But all of the books, uh, for the most part, are the words of the prophets as they were being said. Uh, except Isaiah. Uh, in that Isaiah's book covers the time of the prophet Isaiah. Uh, but there's also was a, either an Isaiah school of prophetic thought or some followers, other people that prophesied in his name, and so the book of Isaiah covers a little over 200 years, uh, which is unique amongst the prophets, uh, that his covers such a long time span. Uh, and, and Isaiah's book begins at a time of relative peace uh, and economic goodness for the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Israel and Judah, although the poor were not doing well. Uh, but there wasn't a lot of war going on. Things were relatively peaceful. Economically, the country was doing well. At least uh, you know, the rich people, the merchant class, the, the government officials had a lot of money. The poor were getting hammered, and the, and the prophets constantly speak out against that. But for the most part, relatively good times. When Isaiah begins, and, I, and Isaiah, this book is there, uh, as the northern kingdom is invaded and destroyed, and the southern kingdom is invaded and destroyed, and Jerusalem gets destroyed, and the temple gets destroyed, and the people are sent into exile. Uh, and then uh, Isaiah is still there as the people are allowed back into their homeland. And so Isaiah's book is a record of the prophet, but also this continuing record of a school of thought that lasted for uh, a couple hundred years. So we have this long book covering a very important period in, in the history of the Jewish people, from a time of relative peace to complete and total destruction and exile. Uh, and Isaiah is kind of in, in sort of three, uh, three groupings. If the first Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, covering this time of uh, just before and after Assyria invades the northern kingdom, 
Uh, second Isaiah, which is another 16 chapters written during the Babylonian exile in the 500s. And then third Isaiah, which comes after the exile when the people were allowed to come back in and uh, rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temp- uh, temple. So Isaiah is unique for the length of time that it covers, and he is a major prophet because his book is long, because there's a lot of words, uh, and also a major prophet for Christians, probably the major prophet for Christians because of what he said about a time of coming Messiah. Uh, and I want to show you how important Isaiah was in the early church. I have, oh, here. I have in my library a collection of books called Ancient Christian Commentary on Scripture. Uh, and this is a, a collection of uh, things that scholars wrote in the first 600 years of Christianity, or not just scholars, but bishops and pastors and, uh, and preachers. Uh, so we have Ezekiel is a major prophet, and this is kind of a collection of a bunch of stuff written about Ezekiel. Uh, and this also includes Daniel, who's not a prophet, so this book isn't all Ezekiel. Uh, we have Jeremiah, one of the other of the three major prophets, and Lamentations, which he probably wrote, commentary on him. All 12 prophets, ancient commentary fit in this volume, so I can keep these from falling. Isaiah was so popular, and people wrote about Isaiah so much, that the guys who put this commentary together had to fit him in two volumes by himself. And in the foreword, uh, to this commentary, the editor said he had an awful, awful time getting it down to these two. Uh, there's so much material. Again, because Isaiah, there's so many words in Isaiah about a coming Messiah. So the beginning of Isaiah is offering some judgment against the people of Judah for defiling what is holy for forgetting God, for not living as they are supposed to be living. They're not being faithful. And Judah, the southern kingdom, is where Jerusalem was and where the temple is. God was thought to live in the temple, to be in uh, the temple. And so Isaiah declares that God cannot live in an unholy place. The people have made it unholy, and so God is going to come and cleanse Jerusalem and cleanse the temple. And not going to come and cleanse it with a steam cleaner, and a lot of elbow grease. This is going to be a pretty severe cleansing that he predicts being conquered by the surrounding nations. So I want to read some of this first chapter. The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Isaiah was alive for all four of those kings. Hear, O heavens, and listen, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. O sinful nation, people laden with iniquity, offspring who do evil, children who deal corruptly, who have forsaken the Lord, who have despised the Holy One of Israel, who are utterly estranged. And Isaiah offers a chance for repentance here, or a way out of this. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. 
Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Then he goes on, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed by justice, and those in her who repent by righteousness. This constant refrain of the prophets is the people's unfaithfulness, and specifically their unfaithfulness to be just and merciful and compassionate. They weren't unfaithful so much in, in making sacrifices of animals or burnt offerings or honoring the festivals or the holy days. They were doing okay at that, although there was a problem that they were also keeping the festivals and holy days and making sacrifices to a whole bunch of other gods, which isn't good. They're only supposed to have the one, the one god. But they were doing okay on the, the superficial trappings of the faith. Where they were going wrong, they were, as Isaiah said, despising God by the way that they lived. The merchants were cheating their customers. The government leaders, the religious leaders were unjust. They were oppressive. They were not defending the orphan. They were not pleading for the widow. They were taking bribes. They were running after gifts. In a lot of ways, not very different than today. As I've said before, it's good to read the prophets because they're... 2,500 years and more uh, old, but we really haven't changed in how we do things. They still speak to us. And the answer to all this unfaithfulness was to repent, and to repent by living in justice and by living in righteousness. Now, we've heard other prophets say that God doesn't want sacrifices or empty rituals or holy days. God wants Mercy and love, compassion. God wants justice. Jesus doesn't want us in the church, although he does. Jesus calls us to be the church, to be the body of Christ in the world, outside of these walls. You know, we come to worship because it's a time to learn how to be the church, to how, how to do that, a time to re-energize and to be fed and to be nourished. At least I hope that's what you all experience when you come into worship. But if we don't take this experience beyond these walls, then it doesn't mean a whole lot. Then we're back to Isaiah's time, and his words are an indictment against us. I thought about this, about a possibility of an empty church or sanctuary. Imagine a, uh, that on a Sunday morning a church is is empty, but it's empty because the people are out being the church. They're out feeding the hungry and helping the homeless, giving water to the thirsty, looking for sick people to, uh, to take for help, taking lonely people out for brunch, uh, helping shut-ins shop for groceries, babysitting for a frazzled single parent so that he or she can 
find a few hours to go do something that they can't do with the child around them, like maybe just have adult conversation for a couple hours. Or if the members were not in the sanctuary because they were out pounding on the walls of the capitals demanding justice for the poor and the marginalized. I don't think any preacher would be upset if the church was empty because the people were out doing that because they were out being the church. We could also imagine a church that is filled on Sunday morning and filled because the people have so done God's work that there's nothing left to do. Imagine that world. Or full because the people during the week, because all of us during the week have been so busy being the church that we need this hour to come together, to have a time of Sabbath, to be re-energized, to re-hear the good news, to hear the gospel, to refocus and energize us to go back out and be the church. Excuse me. I, uh, at the end of chapter 1, Isaiah says to the people, and God says to the people through Isaiah, you shall be ashamed of the oaks in which you delighted, and you shall blush for the gardens that you have chosen. Saying there's going to come a time There will come a time, and I don't think this is necessarily judgment. I think this is more a word of of hope. It's saying there will come a time when you will realize, when you will be embarrassed by the things that you chased after that weren't God, that you chased after because you thought they would bring you wholeness and happiness. There will come a time when God will be so present, and we will be so in tune with God that we will be embarrassed by the things that we chased after. And after the people were sent into exile, Isaiah offered these words of comfort coming from that second Isaiah section. And you may recognize these. Uh, Read this at Advent as well. Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that she has served her term, that her penalty is paid, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Then it continues, and that's what John the Baptist quoted. A voice cries out, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Then the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all the people shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And it continues. See, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms, and carry them in his bosom, and gently lead the mother sheep. A few recognizable things in there. The words of John the Baptist make way uh, a desert or make way a a road in the desert. And this hinting of Jesus as the shepherd to lead the sheep and to carry the lambs. But then this passage from chapter 9. And this is one that we read 
at Advent. This is one that um, Jesus was referencing in that second gospel lesson about light and dark and blind and seeing. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For the yoke of their burden and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace for the throne of David and his kingdom. He will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time onward and forevermore. And lastly, from that third Isaiah, the one writing after the people have been allowed to return to Jerusalem after the exile, this is sometime after the year 538, Babylon had conquered Judah, sent the people into exile, and then Persia conquered Babylon. And it was King Cyrus of Persia that allowed the exiles to go back and rebuild the temple. And they rebuilt the temple. Uh, That's the one that Jesus would have known. Uh, It was still there in uh, in Jesus' time. And that's the temple that the Romans destroyed about 40 years after Jesus' resurrection. Uh, And there's still a remnant from that temple, the Wailing Wall, that's in Jerusalem. uh, is the only thing that remains from that second temple. And that wasn't even part of the temple per se, that was part of the outside wall uh, around the temple, and that was a wall that was actually built by King Herod just a couple years before Jesus was born. But after Rome destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple, that chunk of wall is all that is left, and that is the Wailing Wall. And so Isaiah, writing at a time when the exiles are being allowed back into Jerusalem to rebuild and to try to become a people again, they still weren't their own country, they were under Persia uh, at this point. They never become a country again until after World War II. But Isaiah had this to say. For I am about to create new heavens and a new earth. The former things shall not be remembered or come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I am about to create Jerusalem as a joy and its people as a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and delight in my people. No more shall the sound of weeping be heard in it or the cry of distress. This reminds me of a verse in chapter 2 when Isaiah says, They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. There's uh, two other times in the New Testament I want to mention Isaiah being quoted. One, uh, you may remember a few months ago, we read from the book of Acts the story of the Ethiopian eunuch that uh, the apostle Philip meets on the road, and the eunuch is reading from Isaiah, reading from the 53rd chapter, and Philip explains that's talking about Jesus, and the eunuch becomes uh, a believer and is baptized. Uh, And then Jesus himself, the story in Luke 4, when Jesus goes to the synagogue and he's handed a scroll, 
opens the scroll, unrolls it, kind of searches through it, it's looking for a specific passage, and he finds it. Uh, and the scroll is Isaiah. And he reads this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the man that gave it to him, and then said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And so it has. His words of comfort from a long ago prophet who saw his homeland destroyed and his people sent in, into exile reminds these people that God's promise to Abraham and to Moses and to everyone else, that God's promise still holds. A promise that was fulfilled in Jesus Christ and continues to be fulfilled by all who strive for the kingdom. Thanks be to God. Amen.